Questions, thoughts, complaints? Jonah. Uh, Luke 9, 30 and 31. Can you just elaborate on that? Absolutely. So the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's commonly known, is a pivot point in Jesus' ministry. Um, The other big pivot points would be uh, his baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Um, Jesus doesn't begin his formal ministry until the Father equips him with the Spirit. And Jesus is teaching in and around Galilee. He goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Father himself, now for a second time, testifies to who the Son is. And his glory is revealed in a cloud of glory. And interestingly, verse 30, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke about his departure. And then you look at the footnote there, Greek exodus, which is unusual. That's not a commonly used word. And so Luke is trying to show us that they're talking about something Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem that can be spoken of as an exodus. And you think about the role the exodus plays in the Old Testament, and the exodus is, hands down, the great single saving event of God and of God's people. That's, again and again, the Psalms will turn back to the salvation from Egypt and the exodus. That's, we, in the same way that we keep going back to the cross and singing about the cross in the Old Testament, they keep looking back to the big salvific event where God redeemed his people and he made a son and he brought them forth and the waters. I mean, in one sense, from a, from a miraculous standpoint, it's cataclysmic. You get the plagues, darkness, the Red Sea splitting. They go to a mountain that's shaking and quaking and God writes on a stone tablet and they enter into a covenant with God. And the end result is they leave Sinai, a nation, before they went into Egypt, a family, and then they leave Sinai, a nation, in a covenant with God. And so when we were back in Luke 9, we're saying is one of the ways, and we think of metaphors, one of the ways that we can think of usefully um, Jesus' death on the cross, and we can certainly think like Paul prefers legal categories. So Paul will help us look at the cross like a courtroom. You know, and and, and an, a, an accusation and a defense and a verdict and a standing before a judge. And that's a really helpful way to think about salvation, right? Um, it, it's a true way to think about salvation. Well, another helpful and true way is like an exodus. Like, like in that you're, what you're doing is you're redeeming, releasing, and drawing to yourself a people. And that's the exodus. My people are in slavery they, they're crying out. God hears their cry. He feels pity for them, and he sends a Savior. He releases his people. Through the death of a firstborn and the blood of a lamb, he frees his people from that slavery, draws them to himself, and enters into a covenant with them through the agency of a great prophet and priest. Hmm. And here, through our great prophet, like Moses, that when at the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when the Father says, listen to him, that's uh, linking back to Deuteronomy um, 18, where he says, I will raise up for you among your brothers, one after you, like you. It is to him they must listen. And so Israel's looking for, in fact, when, when John the Baptist is baptizing at the river and the delegation from Jerusalem, this John 1 come to him and they say, hey, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? They're, they're referencing Deuteronomy 18, the prophet. So when the father says, listen to him, 
He's identifying Jesus as the prophet like Moses who is talking to Moses. <laughs> and again, it makes sense for Moses to talk to Jesus about an exodus. That would that'd make a lot of sense too, right? So Jesus, one of the ways we can look at Jesus' redemption is he's, he is the lamb that was slain. He is the God will redeem his people through the death of a firstborn, through the lamb that is slain, from slavery, Paul uses that language in Romans 5 and 6. We were freed from slavery to sin. And we enter into a new covenant. So they enter the old covenant at Sinai. And just before, this, the night before this happens, at the Last Supper, Jesus holds up the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So what Jesus is about to do is purchase and act a new covenant, just as Moses mediated the covenant at Sinai. So you've got a covenant, you've got freedom, you've got the death of a firstborn, you've got blood, you've got um, a making of a people. Those are all helpful, useful, and true ways to look at what Jesus is doing. So in that sense, Jesus is enacting an exodus. That's what, I'm, that's what I think Luke's having us see and what I was trying to argue this morning. Does that make sense? Or make more sense? Anyway? Okay. Anyone, anyone want to run with that? There's JP. Okay. Now, he's got the next question, but before we do that, any further questions on the Exodus motif in Luke? Okay, here comes JP. (laughs) 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 We gotta get my coffee. So, my ESV says there's an omission in verse 34? Yeah. Verse 34, in many old manuscripts, is absent. Of course, there were no numbers in the old manuscripts. They were added in the Middle Ages. And so, actually, I wrestled with this question of better part of Wednesday with Daniel talking about it. It's tough, because the textual witnesses that just don't have it is pretty impressive. They're old. The texts that have it is impressive. Uh, Now, when you're trying to deal with text variation... One of the rules of sorting this out, you want, a, you want a broad geographic spread. Okay, both sides have it. You want old, both sides have it. There's no parallel in the synoptics. This is unique to Luke. It does not occur in Matthew, Mark, or John. This is the only place where Jesus says, Forget, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. I, I landed in favor of it for two reasons. One... A continuity of setting this up with Stephen in Acts 7. Um, I, since Luke, since there's no question about what Stephen says in Acts, is it 6 or 7? Stephen gets stoned in 6 or 7? Seven. 7. Since there's no debate about that, that seems to verify or sets up Jesus doing it in one sense. But probably even more strongly, I can't imagine, and, and this is the biggest trouble, this is why they include it, a scribe omitting this. I mean, I scribe adding this, making it up. Nothing in the context demands it. Nothing in the context. Usually when scribes add things, they're trying to harmonize. And the most common scribal additions are when a scribe very familiar with Matthew adds a detail that Matthew has to Mark or to Luke, you know, because he thinks it should be there. Oh, someone forgot to add that in. And so most of the variations in the Gospels fall along those lines. It's quite understandable. If you're copying... Matthew a couple hundred times, and you start copying Mark, it's not surprising you add a word or a phrase to an encounter that's similar in Mark that Matthew has. But, but cutting something, no, but making something up, creating an entire utterance for Jesus from the cross, that seems unlikely. 
it's more believable, still difficult, but more believable that a scribe who knew it wasn't in Matthew, knew it wasn't in Mark, knew it wasn't in John, cut it off because he didn't recognize it. And the other possible reason why a scribe might get rid of it is so as to not make Jesus look like his prayer failed. If they understood 70 AD as God saying, no, I'm not going to forgive them, I'm going to destroy them. It's conceivable that a scribe wanting to protect Jesus from looking like he utters a prayer that isn't answered. It's not still terribly likely. I mean, that's erasing a whole verse. But it ultimately seems more likely to me that someone would leave it off for those reasons than someone would make it up and make it up in multiple geographic locations around the same time. But it's, it's a tough one. It is it's one of the tougher ones I've, I've looked at. That's, that's my... So I heard the argument that it was, in, it was made up exactly because they didn't want Stephen to look more Better. merciful than Christ... That's, that's no, 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 part of what you got to come up with. No, that, that, that could be an argument. I hadn't read anyone make that argument. It makes perfect sense to me that someone would make that argument. Um, the concern would be, man, is, is Stephen more merciful and more loving than Jesus? Well, if Stephen says this, then we got to put something even better than that in Jesus' mouth. That's a rationale for why a scribe might add it. I, it's tough. I mean, if somebody wanted to land on the other side, I couldn't dogmatically say, you're wrong. It's a tough one. And, and all the... Um, Textual commentaries in the Greek New Testament I looked at admit it's a tough one. So that's where I landed and why. And if someone landed differently, I'm not going to get in a fight over it. Yeah. I guess my second question is then, he makes an argument in that quote. It says, forgive them for or because they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's not, I've never seen that argument in the Bible for a reason for forgiveness. That seems almost antithetical to what is said in Romans 1. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. Although Stephen makes that argument, right? He does, yeah. I think, and and it's difficult because Luke has shown Israel with open eyes is killing someone they know to be innocent. So in what sense then, really, can you say they don't know what they're doing? Well, there's at least some sense, because Peter, in Acts 3, uses the same language, right? So go, go to Acts 3. Very astute and difficult question, JP. Good for you. Five points. Um, okay. Verse 17 of Acts 3. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back your sins may be blotted out. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He said it three times. Israel knew he was innocent. They didn't care. In what sense is Israel not know what they're doing? The Romans not know what they're doing. I think that my best understanding is they don't understand the magnitude of what they're doing. And it's entirely possible, JP, um, one of the possible readings of what Jesus is saying is ultimately do not, Jesus just pronounced the destruction, the judgment to the women who were weeping, right? So they're weeping for him. He says, yeah, you got something worse to weep about, and that's what you're headed for. Weep for you and your children. 
the days are coming when they say, blessed are those without children and the, and the barren womb, right? Because of judgment that's coming, Father, do, maybe, I was talking to my friend uh, back in New Hampshire, Chris, not the Chris in the back row, but another, there's so many Chris's growing up, we had to get nicknames. This one took the nickname of a French general, Foch. Um, everyone say, hi, Foch. He listens to the podcast. Hi, Foch, everybody. Oh, yeah, it was sad. Everyone say, hi, Foch. There we go. Okay, great. Um, he suggested, and I think there might be some merit to this, ultimately, he's saying, don't ultimately cast off Israel. Ultimately, Father, don't forgive them, restore them, for they ultimately don't know what they do. And if you go and read Isaiah 53, there's very much an element to Isaiah 53. We did not recognize his splendor or his glory. He, we did not see him as beautiful. We did not. And there's a, there is a true sense when you read Isaiah 53, J.P., there's a recognition of ignorance, partial ignorance, not full of ignorance, not total ignorance, by no means, but somewhat, some lack of not recognizing. Because you're absolutely right. Ignorance of the law does not defend one from the law. Although, those who don't have the law of God, will they be judged by the law of God? No. There is a sense in which you are only ever judged by what you know, too, right? So if you only have a conscience, God will judge you by your conscience. If you only have you know, the evidence of God in nature and creation, it will still condemn you. No one's getting off on that basis. But you know, tribesmen in Papua New Guinea who've never heard of the Scripture will not be judged by the law of Moses. They'll be judged by the law of their conscience. And they'll be condemned on that basis. Um, Paul says in Romans 2, for when Gentiles who do not have the law... Oh, if I can't quote... I'm not going to try to quote it... After Spurgeon this morning, we'll just play it safe. Um, Romans 2. Um, there it is, 14. For the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, yeah, that, that's, that's what I think is going on there. But I think ultimately Israel is being forgiven as people are being. And that's why I'm trying to emphasize also the need to repent, the need to return. It's, we're not pursuing innocent people. Guilty people need to confess their sin and turn to Christ. And that's how Jesus' prayer for forgiveness would be fulfilled, if it is indeed part of Luke's gospel. Am I taking it that you, you lean the other way? Okay. I'm not going to argue with you on that. That's fine. Other questions or thoughts? Did anyone perk up when I said, God doesn't forgive the unrepentant and he doesn't call on us to either? I expected that to be somewhat. Thank you, Zach. I expected somebody but what? Um, let, let's talk about that for a minute then. Hold on. We got a sip of coffee. Go juice. Mm. There is some debate among Christians, um, good, God-believing, God-fearing people we'll see in heaven, brothers and sisters, about whether or not forgiveness can be given to people who have not asked for it, people who have not recognized they've done wrong. Largely, the debate is over semantics. It's over what we call things. Because um, I hold to um, what's called transactional forgiveness. Forgiveness can only res be the result of 
a transaction where the person says, hey, I'm sorry. You're like, okay, great, I forgive you. That transaction occurs. We have restored our relationship. Um, others would argue, no, you can forgive. Under, so when, so when uh, the people who, the survivors, remember that guy who shot up that church Bible study and the survivors showed up? That was a wonderful testimony of grace, and they show up and say, we forgive you. Well, the guy never asked for forgiveness. I think what they did was wonderful. I wouldn't call it forgiveness. I'd call it something else good. What you can certainly do, and, and no one disagrees in this, we don't hold grudges. We don't bear resentments. We give things over to God. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who mistreat us. We bless them. We intercede on their behalf. And we certainly want to be reconciled. My understanding of forgiveness includes restoration of relationship. Because that's what God's forgiveness to me includes. It includes we are reconciled. So because of that, and because of Jesus' statements about if he repents, forgive him, which is what I see taking place, and because I don't see God restoring relationships apart from confession and turning, I would not call something that does not include a restored relationship forgiveness. I'd say, you want to forgive. Your heart is tender towards them. You're like God reaching out saying, let's be at peace. Wonderful. And we should all be doing that. I wouldn't call that forgiveness. So what most people usually mean when they say I forgive him is, I've stopped holding on to it. I've stopped resenting it. I've stopped carrying it around. We should all do that. And that's part of forgiveness. I would want to include in the definition of forgiveness restoration. So uh, it, it largely is a disagreement about what we call things, not what we're actually doing. In practice, there is not much disagreement. Does that make sense? You with me? So it's not that big of a deal. Um, except, except, well, I'll let, I'll let Marina go, and then I'll tell you what the except is. But in Colossians 3, verse 13, it says, and it's like a follow of 12, mm-hmm. and so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It doesn't say when they ask you to or when they come and, and repent. It says you forgive. No, no. But how do you know they have a complaint? I mean, I, it, I think it works just as well if the assumption is when you have a complaint, you go talk to somebody. You don't hate your brother in the heart. You go reason frankly. Then the the emphasis would be on you've done that. Now forgive him. You've well, done that. I got. I okay. always read that to okay. mean I have the complaint, and they should come and ask for forgiveness because my complaint obviously is righteous. How how do we how do we obey the commands to if your brother sins? go and show it to him privately, if I'm just to forgive him. I mean, wouldn't that put you in a pretty difficult dilemma? Jesus in Matthew 18 tells me privately, go talk to my brother. And if I, and, but at the same time, this is serious enough that if he doesn't listen to me, I'm to bring along two or three more. And if he won't listen to us, I'm to tell it to the church. And if he won't listen to the church, we're to treat him as a Gentile tax collector. Is that serious? Or I could just forgive him. That seems strange to me. You're, so you're, no, because in Colossians, no, the Colossians brothers. are brothers. In Colossians, it's brothers. Oh, yeah, they're brothers. Absolutely, it is. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, see, but my, that's part of where I do think there's some danger here and why I care about this is, in my experience, a lot of people refuse to go deal with issues of offense. They claim they're forgiving it, but in reality, they actually are harboring bitterness. And the excuse for why you don't need to go talk to the person is, I'm just going to cover it. I'm just going to forgive them. And it's and, true, bringing it up is much harder. Oh, way harder. Way, way harder. So that is my concern, is, is when people are like, 
you should probably go talk to that person. It's clear they've offended you. It's clear you're upset. No, no, I decided to forgive them a long time ago. Clearly you haven't, because <laughs> you told me about it. Um, no, 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 I'm going to forgive them. No, you need to go talk to them. The second greatest commandment in its context says, don't bear a grudge. Don't get angry. Go reason frankly with your neighbor. You shall love your neighbors yourself. So I'm not surprised that that's probably one of the hardest things for people to do. But go to, go to the end of James. Look how James ends. Now, let me say one other thing, Marina. Perhaps little questionable things. You didn't send me a Christmas card, whatever. I'm just going to forgive him. What you really just mean, I'm just going to let go of it. I'm not going to track that down. That's not even a clear sin. That might be something you think I should ask questions about. And one day you decide, you know what? I'm going to stop worrying about why I didn't get a Christmas card. I'm not going to bring it up. And you might, again, we're calling things things. I wouldn't call that forgiveness because there's no clear sin involved. There's something that offended you, something that bugs you, and you've decided, you know what? That's not worth bringing up. Good for you. It's just what we're calling things that we're disagreeing on. So at the end of James, I got to get there now. This is where the electronic Bible people have got me beat. But hold on. There it is. End of James 5. 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, so I, the other part of the problem I have is this. If you've, say you've sinned. Now, the issue isn't about me. Absolutely, I need to get over me. But until you see that, you're to some degree walking in darkness, Right? Until you deal with that and confess that, to some degree, your relationship with the Lord is affected, right? So what's the most loving thing I could do to you? Gently, not making it about me, like, how dare you treat me that way? But, hey, Marina, I think you need to do a little course correction that way, right? Isn't that the most loving thing I could do? So that, that's the other thing. It's just, in the name of, I'm just going to forgive him, we let people wander off into, you know, sin and trouble. And that's, that's my concern, but... I think in most cases, we're just calling things different names, and it's not that big of a deal. I think, what the, I think what the people from that church did was wonderful and beautiful and gave God glory and honor. I, I, I commend it. Even if, if you pressed me on it, I wouldn't exactly call it forgiveness. I'd call it a willingness, a spirit to a, a letting go of bitterness and a pr- loving one's enemy and praying for them and showing the love of Christ. I'd say it's all of that, and it was marvelous that they did that. Okay, more questions. Oh, Mrs. Moore. So, Jeremy, when the Lord says, when your brother sins against you seven times 70, and he comes back to you and says, forgive me, I mean, there sort of seems to be um, the repentance that would be involved. And the fact that you just brought up the sin issue, if he sins against you as opposed to, you know, he didn't send you the card at Christmas. Right, right, right. Um, Now, it's possible the card at Christmas is, I mean, what what happens with most things is is very seldom are we dealing with black and white sins or dealing with things that require motives. So, sure, if I see, I don't know, if I see my mom, you know, Greg, what? Greg? So if I see Greg, like, you know, shove Lois down a flight of stairs, 
I don't need to know what's, and, and it's clear he's doing it deliberately. I don't need to know what's going on in his heart. I can go, Greg, what on earth are you doing? That's terrific, right? But nine times out of ten, <laughs> for those of you listening in, Greg said nine times out of ten, she deserves it. Okay. Um, nine times out of ten, we need to ask questions. So probably why the, why the Christmas card bugs us is... I don't know, when it's me, I know you're probably not like me, but my heart will say things like, I bet you the reason they didn't send me their Christmas card is because I didn't go to their birthday party. Now, if that truly is the case, they're holding resentment, and that would be wrong. I could only know that if I'm resentful about it. I mean, there's, there's some irony here. But in reality, what I'd be offended at in that situation is me thinking, if what I'm thinking is right, it is sin, right? If, if the reason someone, we're not sending them a Christmas card, they didn't come to my birthday party. If that was why someone did it, that's wrong, right? That's ugly, it's unchristlike, that's wrong. So the reality is, in that scenario, I really am suspecting sin, but I don't have nearly enough information to make that conclusion because I'm not the Lord God who knows the hearts of men. So... Here's an issue where I suspect love's supposed to hope all things, believe all things, and bear all things, but I'm suspicious, and I can just say, you know what? I'm sure there's a good explanation. I don't need to know what it is. I'm just going to let it go. But I haven't forgiven anything because I don't know concretely anything to forgive. I suspected something. You know what I mean? If, if, then they'll prove it to you. You would not be offended if you found out, no, they mailed you a card and it went astray in the mail. The issue isn't that you didn't get a card. The issue is your suspicions for why you didn't get a card. If you found one stuck to the back of an envelope that it had been delivered to your house and somehow it fell and you found it, in a, you wouldn't be upset. You'd, oh, you know. It's all of our suspicions are people's motives. So nine times out of ten, we need to gather data. And so, again, something you may call forgiveness is probably just saying, you know what, I was meaning to follow that up. I was meaning to pull that thread, see where it led. Because it's fair enough to ask somebody, hey, I'm just curious. We used to get your Christmas letter. We used to love it. We just, it stopped last year. What happened? That's a fair enough question to ask if you can do it without anger, without you know, resentment. But you can also just as easily, you know what? I'm not going to follow that up. Whatever. I'm letting it go. Then you need to really let it go. You can't just say you're doing it, but keep bringing it up. Um, but yeah. Okay, Wanda. We have a relative we've been counseling. Well, not we're not counseling, but we're yeah. saying you need to forgive your ex-wife who had an affair and yeah. the family, the kids have gone astray. And So instead, we need to say you need to pray to God that your bitterness will leave? Yes. Okay. That your resentment. Okay. That your resentment, that you would see the wrong... This gets back to what I was saying something this morning. That your... Um, perpetrator of wrongdoing before God is greater than the wrongs done against you. You see, Jesus told a story about a man who was forgiven millions of dollars, and he went and he strangled the person who owed him 50 bucks. And it's all about perspective. This person you're describing has been wronged. Someone broke a covenant. Somebody broke their word to him. Somebody betrayed a trust. That's all evil. It's wrong. And those people who did that will suffer for hell in hell for that. Or Christ suffers on the cross in their stead. To which would you add your wrath? And this, is, this is something when I'm talking to somebody dealing with bitterness, I'll walk through it like, no, no, imagine this person who's wronged you, who's hurt you. 
Imagine them in hell. And you, like Abraham in the story of Jesus and Lazarus, and the, are communicating with them. And you say, yes, you're suffering God's wrath. Now here, bear mine. And you pick up a rock and you throw it. Like, are you going to do that? He would, or, or, yeah. Or, oh, he would. <laughs> he would. Okay. No, but then that's... Then the other inroad is something like this. The amount of anguish and wrath and anger you feel is God is God lets some of these ugly things happen because you know interestingly God paints himself as a cuckolded husband a husband whose wife whores around and will not be faithful and he speaks of his heartbreak and his anguish at his wife you get a, one of the one of the positive redemptive things of this terrible thing is that you get to understand how God paints himself in a unique way. And let me tell you what God's, I mean, you can beeline to the gospel on that, uh, um, on that, that you know, you're right, this is awful. God speaks for chapter after chapter in Ezekiel about how awful it is. Except you read it and you find out he's talking about you and me. We're the whoring wife. Yeah. And again, you're trying to get someone back from viewing themselves fundamentally as the victim of wrong. And yes, 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 yeah. And I don't want to minimize. There's real victimhood, and there's, the Bible cares about that. But that's all predicated upon the sinfulness of man, that fundamentally, in our identity, we are perpetrators of evil, not victims of evil. First and foremost, we are perpetrators of evil. Um, and in today's day and age, that seems like something that needs to be said repeatedly. Because more and more from various groups, people are being told to fundamentally identify themselves as victims. And you could also maybe say that, like, that was the stone when you asked for fish, but it brought him back to Christ. Yeah. So really, it was the fish. Yeah. Yeah? No, okay. abso- absolutely. Okay, thank you. No, abs- no, absolutely. God brings people to himself through very various and multigated What's the word? Not multigated. Variegated. Yes, yeah. Combined variegated and multi. Yeah. I made up a new word. My mom's got her head down. I made up another new word, mom. (laughs) Uh, No, she keeps track. I say, mom, what did you think of this sermon? You said two words that don't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Or once, I used a word, um, a transitive verb. I used an intransitive verb transitively. I, no, no, I remember. I said that King Herod was infatuated. No, I didn't say infatuated. He was, he was, it was like as if the daughter, his, the, the niece did it to him. He was, what, what was I'll look it up. Um, but she, what? No, I've, I, I got it in my text. Let, Hold it, on. let it go, talk, Jeremy. Let it go. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Next. Well, yes, I please. actually have this because my thought is when we're, um, oh, gee. Okay. That, no, that when people set themselves up as victims, the next step is to set yourself up as judge. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the part I hate. So. Well, and the next part is going to be when, you, when, when a Christian tells you about a God who's sovereign in control of all things. Well, if I'm a victim fundamentally, then God ultimately is the perpetrator. And he's got some explaining to do. He let this stuff happen to me. He could have stopped it. And as a Christian, yeah, he, he could have stopped it. Yes, he could have. And he didn't. And I wouldn't want to say that meanly, but if they press me, absolutely. 
God knew it was going to happen. God allowed it to happen. I, I'd go further and say God purposed and planned all things. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And like we've been in Second Corinthians, yeah. that it's that comfort. He, he lets it happen, but we do have a comfort out of it that we can then share with other people that are going through something similar. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Colleen, are you on? Or are you just moving the mic around? She's being helpful. So help me to her husband. No, no, you're good. You're fine. I wasn't sure if you had a question. Who's, who's got anything I want to add? Mitchell, are you going to call me on my heresy, or we're going to let that lie? Okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, okay. I just Elsa. have a question on that last verse of James, if I may. Yes. Um, the, the last... The last bit whoops, that says, and, I, and will cover a multitude of sins. So you are, you are calling back a sinner from his wandering. Mm-hmm. So his soul is saved from death. The sinner's soul is saved from yeah. death. And will cover a multitude of sins. That, is that on both ends or just on the sinner's end? Oh, I think he's speaking of the same thing twice. You're not saving your own soul. There are some... I think Augustine took it that way, and some Catholic theologians who took it that way. But no, I think the phrase cover a multitude of sins originally comes from Psalm 32 1. How blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not count iniquity, and whom his spirit finds no deceit. And in the first instance, David describes the exact same state of affairs four different ways. He uses parallelism. I think James is doing the same thing. Um, we'll save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He's describing the same thing in two ways. I don't think, so I think both have the wandering brother or the wandering person in view, not this happens for him and this happens for you. Um, so, good, good question, good question. Okay. Anybody else? Well, let me, let, who's, who's up? Oh, Steve uh, I, I just wanted to end on the big stage. Okay. Um, this is a question that you can use for the test. When Christ offers forgiveness, salvation, can you ever claim that without asking for it? Let me, let me, let me see, make sure I understand you. Can a person claim to be forgiven who's never asked for forgiveness? Is that what you're asking me? Correct. No. I would and, say no. And, and that applies to your previous discussion. Right. Can we forgive somebody who does not ask for forgiveness? Yeah, if you say God forgives people who don't ask for forgiveness, then, I, let, then you'd have to say, in its ugliest form, someone who says, God, I hate you, I defy you, I deny your right to tell me what to do, I resent that you expect that I would listen to you, you disgust me. That person's going to be in that condition, without ever changing, is going to be in heaven like that. That's what you have to conclude. Or you have to say, no, at some point, that guy's going to have to change his mind, which is what repentance fundamentally means, a fundamental change of, of mind and intent and direction, and say, no, you're, you were right, and you were good, and you were holy. And, you know. So the thought of someone like that being in heaven is, I think, unthinkable. Um. Unless they were from New Guinea and their conscience didn't tell them it was wrong. <laughs> well, no, because the conscience, according to Romans 1, tells us as a creator God, tells us we ought to be thankful to him. 
not tell him to get lost and you disgust me. So we do know some of the content that everyone has. Uh, No, no, Romans 1 goes through what that is. Everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows right and wrong. Everyone knows doing wrong brings judgment. And everyone knows doing good doesn't make up for doing wrong. Everybody knows that. Which is to say, everybody knows they're in trouble. Naomi. On the issue of knowing there is a God, so when there are people who come up with a God and they're not told otherwise that that this God that they have created in their minds or like created a religion around is wrong and is not the true God, how does that work then? Oh, sure. I think there the issue would be um, did you... Paul assumes we know our conscience comes from God. Our conscience is a reflection of what God wants us to do. So I think the argument would be taken to, did you obey your conscience? No, I did not always obey my conscience. Okay, what's your answer for that? Now, every other false religion I'm aware of has got some sort of work system in place, which the fourth point he makes in Romans 3 destroys. You can't earn your way out of this. You need grace and forgiveness. Um, So... I mean, Paul is even willing to talk about people groping from somewhere, an unknown God. Like, he seems to be somewhat even remotely. He doesn't just smash it down. I'm not saying it's valid, but there is a sense. If there were people who always only ever obeyed their conscience, there aren't. If such people existed and they made a statue to an unknown God, I don't know if that, we're off into who knows, maybe land. I don't know if that would offend God. The argument is, you know God exists, and you know what he wants you to do, and you didn't do it. And your way to remedy that was to try to work or forget about it or give it a makeover. That, that's where I'd go to. So I wouldn't make it the fundamental issue is what do you call your God. I'd make it the fundamental issue, how are you trying to deal with your sin? How are you trying to deal with your iniquity and your, your guilt? And, you know, that's, that's, I think, where you can show people that their religious system isn't going to work. Well, I know of it. You need a savior, and... I know of one, you know, um, is where you can go to. I want to say, oh, Patrice, you going to ask me about my heresy? <laughs> no, I didn't get called. I did not get called a heretic by, by Mitchell. It was only insinuated. I just had a further question with uh, what Steve said. Um, is it Steve or Steven? Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, so is... Is the confession of your sin necessary for repentance to happen? I'm just thinking of like, you believe in Jesus, you believe that he died for your sins, but is there a necessity for the acknowledgement of your sin in order to walk in repentance or to say, I have repented? Yes and no. I don't believe there's any necessity of a verbal spoken utterance. I can't look for a savior unless I recognize I need saving. To me, that seems like a necessary foundational truth is I'm in trouble, I need forgiveness. A person who does not think they need forgiveness, a person who does not recognize any wrath, is not a person who's going to trust a savior. So logically, yeah, I think you need to agree with that premise. You don't ever need to necessarily say it. Um, mute people can be saved after all, right? Um, but yes, I think logically a foundational premise 
And the reason why in Romans, Paul spends three chapters laying out God's wrath before turning again to the gospel is these are premises that you need to understand and own. So yeah, a person who doesn't think, I am sinless, I am righteous, is not going to be able to trust Jesus while they still think they're sinless and righteous, not in any saving way. Um, Are you asking more than that, or is that what you're asking? Okay. Let me go a step further with confession. I think confession assumes repentance. Um, The etymology, the word origin of confession is identical in Greek and in English. So con, with, um, fession to say, to say with, and homologamon in Greek, homo, same, logeo, to speak or to say, to say the same, to say the same with. And so the notion is you are agreeing with. So it assumes I, there was a time where I wasn't agreeing with. So there was a time where God said, love your enemies. And I said, vengeance is mine, right? I'm disagreeing with God. And I, and I was angry at someone. I spoke angrily. What has to happen in between that and me now agreeing with God? You know, vengeance is yours, Lord, and I was wrong. The shift, the change, the internal change of mind, belief, and purpose, which we call repentance, is presupposed for me to get from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God. So there is no confession without repentance. Confession is the result of repentance. If you want to break it down logically, my will was opposed to God. My will was believing the lies of my heart. I saw the error, and I began to believe and confess what God says. And in doing so, I have repented. So when 1 John 1, 9 talks about if we confess our sins, from a, if you want to zoom in, that's only possible if we've repented. We cannot agree with God, truly, while we're holding sin to our heart. Sin is disagreeing with God. No, my way's better. I know best. Confession. No, you know best. Now I'm, I'm stupid, and I was wrong, right? So... If you were to press me in on on the inner workings of those things, I would say confession, confessing our sin, presupposes repentance from sort of logical sense. We are at time. I'll be happy to chat with anyone else. Um, You guys have yourself a good afternoon. You're dismissed.